You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Robert Salzman lay crying on a prison cot this summer in June. If you looked at his face, you'd see the face of a lifelong hardened criminal. A life lived largely in the American prison system. Tattoos on his face, the physique of a uh, recognized boxer. And yet there he lies crying. The irony is that in a New York Times article that was published last month, there's a backstory to these tears. And that is, in fact, that the cell to uh, Mr. Salzman's prison is actually open. And he has the freedom to walk through it at any point in time that he chooses. It's just that he's forgotten that he's been freed. As it happened, an independent film producer uh, had spotted him on a subway traveling through New York City. Uh, Rashad Ernesto Green, who's the writer and director of Gun Hill Road, was looking for a character to cast. And he had the temerity to approach uh, Mr. Salzman, who just had the right face for the part, uh, and asked him, would you be willing to audition for this part? Uh, Mr. Salzman needed work, and uh, so, in fact, he did audition, and he was given the part. Mr. Green said we chose authenticity over experience. They needed a prisoner. Uh, and um, so as they were on location in Long Island in a prison, they're filming this between takes. Mr. Salzman happens to take a nap and he lies on a cot in one of the cells. But when he wakes up, he has forgotten that he is not back in jail. He's been free since 2001. Freedom is not just an objective reality. Real freedom is the ability to live freely. And this is what the Israelites are invited to discover in this next, the fifth marker of their journey from slavery in Egypt into the promise of God's love. It is a bread to build. Would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16? Uh, And if you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find that page 55. I'm going to actually ask us to read two different sections. We're going to skip a little here, but the, uh, the text this morning is Exodus 16, Verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump down to verse 9 and read 9 through 12. Exodus 16, 1 through 5, and then 9 through 12. If you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud. If you're visiting when we're done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. 
In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, our lives will be shaped by whatever or whomever we follow. You are the good shepherd. We want our lives shaped by you. So speak to us that we might hear your voice this morning and follow by your spirit. Amen. We have a great uh, new curriculum for our children. Our Sunday school class is called Godly Play and involves uh, creative use of toys and learning. And uh, David Hallgren, our pastor, children and family, told me uh, a story recently that was so encouraging to both of us that how much we learn from kids. But apparently a couple months ago, uh, he overheard uh, two of our three-year-olds talking. And as part of the curriculum, they're pulling out a a toy. It's the toy. It's the desert toy, right, to teach the lesson of the wilderness. The Israelites travel through it. So they're pulling out the toys. And the first child says, this is uh, uh, the desert. The desert is a dangerous place. You know, and and that's a line from the curriculum. The desert is a dangerous place. What's interesting is that he got that. But more interesting is the response that he heard from his friend. She said, yes, that's where our family begins. Isn't that interesting? Yes, the desert. It's a dangerous place. But that's where our family begins. Which is to say, it's not just where their family began, the Israelites. That would be true, too. But it's in the desert that our family begins as well. In the desert, we know ourselves to be a people who have been liberated by the love of a heavenly father. We know ourselves to be children of God. It's in the desert. It's too bad that it has to happen in the desert because the Israelites are in a great place in chapter 15. I mean, I guess it's kind of like the Palm Springs of the Middle East. It's called Aileen, which means palms. And the descriptions could be right out of like a AAA travel guide, right? There were 12 springs of water, round number, and 70 palm trees, number of perfection. And you could just tell there's a whole mythology that's built up around Aileen. And when the Israelites got to Aileen, they say, yes, everything Moses has told us must be true. Look at the great God that we worship. Look at where we are. The palms. It's just beautiful. But it's at that moment that Moses and Aaron say, okay, pull up tent pegs. We're going into the wilderness of sin. Now, by the way, that's not the English word sin. That word sin is probably a derivative of Sinai, 
the wilderness in which the mountain Sinai, the range of Sinai, is located. The point is, it's a desert. (laughs) It's the wilderness, and the wilderness is a dangerous place. Why would we be led there? It's important to know. You and I are living in the wilderness. That's a pretty good metaphor for the phase of human existence we find ourselves in right now. You see, because the wilderness in the Bible is that place between Egypt and Canaan, between God's great act of redemption in rescuing slaves and the fulfillment of that redemption in bringing them into the promised land. There's the wilderness. The wilderness, in the same way, is the space between the coming of Jesus Christ, the God incarnate who comes to say, I am God to speak for himself and to invite you into my love, to die on your behalf and to rise in newness of life, to take you with me. And then he disappears for millennia. And we wander in the wilderness of this world until he comes again to fulfill all that was promised, to consummate, to sum up all things in him. We wait for that. And while we wait, we journey through a dangerous place. And it's important to manage your expectations, to know where you are, to not try to live in the present as though it were alien when it's actually the wilderness of sin. Rangers at the uh, Bridger Wilderness Area in Wyoming collected some of their favorite comment cards that they had received from uh, hikers and campers. I read some of them to you. One said, trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. Uh, Another, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. (laughs) Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. Uh, another, please pave the trails so they can be snowplowed during the winter. <laughs> Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike to them. Right? The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. Or here's another animal problem. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Please call. <laughs> Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. That's my favorite. Think about that for a second. And then finally, too many rocks on the mountains. Well, you, you know, you're, you're going to the wilderness. Let's manage our expectations. Let's understand where we are. This wilderness, this wilderness is no recreation area. This is uh, a crisis zone for the Israelites. Best estimate, 20 to 30,000 men, women and children, displaced persons, political and religious refugees on an unprecedented scale have flooded over the border from the lush uh, Nile River Valley into absolute desolate wilderness, if you've ever been to Sinai. Just gray, hard, stubble rock. A seemingly God-forsaken place. 
And, and, and they've been there a month and their rations have run low and grandparents begin to look at their children with concern in their eyes and children begin to look at their children and they begin to contemplate the unthinkable. That we have left Alien behind and that we will now watch one another die one by one. The wilderness is a place of deprivation. The topography of our lives is yearning. We yearn for what we don't have. We yearn for what should be in our relationships, in our work, in our character. It's just not the way it should be. The verbs tell the story. They hungered. They thirsted. They murmured. And they will die, many of them. I think the greatest danger in the wilderness is not these physical crises. I think the greatest danger in the wilderness for them and for us is failing to perceive the presence of God in the midst of the wilderness. It's not knowing that God is here and God is leading me through, yes, even the God-forsakenness of the wilderness. The people get this wrong right off the bat. They begin to complain, but they, they miss the target. They, they complain against, we read, Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron are not the travel agents here. This trip was not their idea. They didn't suggest God at the burning bush, would, would you let us lead a people to a place we think would be really fun to go to? And they say, you know, you, you're, you're complaining against the wrong guys. Who are we? We're just like you. We're just part of the crowd. We're just followers like you. And I think they're not blame shifting. I, I think they're not trying to absolve themselves of responsibility. What I think they're doing is actually witnessing. I think Moses and Aaron know that they're in the wilderness because they're being led. And they're witnessing to that greater reality. They're saying, you're complaining against the one before whom you just danced and sang at the shores of the Red Sea. That's who it is. Do you remember him? Well, we ask ourselves, what are we doing in the wilderness? Why would a God who loves us so much lead us into whatever circumstances you're facing this morning? Whatever it is, it feels like wilderness. And you ask yourself, why, why if God loved me, why if I were trying to be faithful, would I find myself in this mess? And I don't think we really know the answer to that. It may just be a matter of space. That between the promised land and Egypt, there is space. And to get from one to the other, you've got to travel through it. It may just be a matter of time that between the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ and his second coming just takes some time because God has a plan that all people would know Jesus Christ. There are hints of this in the New Testament when Jesus was teaching about the end of times and he says the good news must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And Peter seems to remember this when he says, hey, don't be confused about this. For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. And he's not slow about his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You know, it's just taking some time. And it's an awkward period of time. 
because we're being buried in shallow graves. But we're also being redeemed. So there really is no good explanation for why we're in the wilderness. But what I think our text does give us is a sense of what God can do in our lives in that wilderness. A sense of what God actually urgently wants to do. A gift he wants to give us. A purpose, if not an explanation, for our wandering in the wilderness. And here I come back to one of our children who says it right. Yes, the wilderness is where our family Began. See, this is just the question for the Israelites. The question is, are you a slave or are you a member of a family? Are you a slave or are you a son? The, the text in verse 4 tells us, and this is the Lord speaking, I will, uh, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. That's the test. And that's the marker. It's a bread. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. That's an instruction. In that way, I will test them. Grace, a gift, the bread, plus just a little bit of instruction. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. In Hebrew, it's actually a question. Will they follow my instruction or not? And it's not that God doesn't know the answer. It's that the Israelites don't know the answer because they don't yet experience who God has said they are. A son. Actually, the Hebrew here says literally whether or not it will follow my instruction. Because God is speaking of Israel as a people with a singular male pronoun. And it's interesting. We, we respond to that negatively and, uh, because we don't do that in our culture. And let me just three quick reasons why the male pronoun here, when God is thinking of all of Israel. The first is that the Israelites in that culture were able to use a male pronoun for male and female people. We don't do that anymore in our culture uh, for good reasons. But, the, but that was the way that it was, it was easy for them to hear male and female with a male pronoun. The second reason became clear to me as I read something that somebody else had written about. I think she was a, a, a Filipino woman. She was she was lived in a culture that was a traditional culture that privileged the firstborn son, as ancient Israel did. And when you're in a culture that privileges the firstborn son, and you're not a firstborn son, then you live your whole life with a sense of inferiority. And, and she said, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and I saw this language in the Old Testament of a son, I realized, don't change that. Because what I hear God saying to me is, I am elevating you into this status, the privileged status, the cherished status, the one that has the great inheritance. She says, that that's what it means to me to be called the firstborn son. It's something that someone who is a white male can't really have adequate perception of because we just live with privilege. But somebody who hasn't lived with privilege relishes that label. And the third reason why the male language is that it points us ahead to Jesus Christ, the one who will fulfill the trials of Israel, who himself will wander through the wilderness after God has declared him the waters of baptism, my beloved son, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and relives the 40 years of Israel, fulfilling in every way that in which they failed and you and I fail. So it points us forward. 
But notice the Lord says, I give you a test. And immediately the hackles begin to raise. How do you respond to that? When God says, I'm going to give you a test. Well, be careful because there are two different ways of interpreting that. And it actually splits the difference between a slave mentality and a family mentality. And this is the whole point. The question of whether you experience your family in the wilderness has to do with how you understand this test. The Hebrew word is ambiguous. A test could mean he's going to evaluate me. I know God as a judge and primarily as a judge. And when I come to him, the question is, are you worthy? Do you have what it takes to be one of mine? Are you good enough? Are you, you know, I never know how I think about that. I don't think about it very rationally. I tend to think, well, have I been good today? Or am I more than half good? Or am I more than, am I better than half the people? Or, you know, get all screwed up about this. But that's the slave mentality. This idea that I've somehow got to do something to get from master what I need. And if you see the test as an evaluation, you've got some work to do on your identity. On the other hand, if you see this test by its other Hebrew meaning, which is to train, to approve, to demonstrate through trial, to shape the character of, then you know what you have is an opportunity to work out at the gym your identity. And this is a training exercise, not meant to evaluate you, but to meant to disclose to you who you really are as day by day you journey through the wilderness and receive this gift of bread. Here's how the training is going to work. God says, I'm going to, to rain bread down on you every day. You'll wake up and there'll be a, um, a layer of this fine, flaky substance. We find out what it's called at the end of the chapter, manna. You know what that means in Hebrew? What is it? Right? It's just, you know, that's what you get in the wilderness, something you just can't even recognize, let alone understand. But there is a gift of God. It should be kind of called, what is it? I've never seen it before. It's startling, but it's delicious. It, it tastes like honey, we read, like coriander seed. Honey, a foretaste of the land flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to let it fall every morning with the dew, six days a week. And you will collect. Go out and gather. And that's the instruction. Go out and gather enough for each person. It would be about an omer. That's two quarts, a little bit more than two quarts. And you bring it back and you'll have enough for the day, for uh, five days. On the sixth day, because I'm a God who wants to give you rest, I will give you a double dose. You'll gather two omers. You'll have enough for the sixth day and enough for the seventh, and you will not need to work. You will rest in my grace on the seventh day. So how is that a test? Well, it's going to force you to decide every single day about whether you have a God in heaven who sees you as his child, who, who, who sees himself as a father to you and would provide for you everything you need. Enough is as good as a feast, and he wants to give you enough. 
each day. And so you'll go out and you'll gather that Omer's worth and you'll see that I have enough and that my neighbor has enough and that we all have enough and, and no one has too much and no one has too little. What a beautiful picture of the family of God. And you'll say, you'll start to apportion that through your meals. If you're going to eat three meals, you'll eat a little breakfast, a little lunch. And you, you'll have to be, decide, do I think that tomorrow there will be more? And some of them answer that question negatively, apparently, because they try to save some. And so they, for some reason, go hungry because they're worried about tomorrow. And so they save some for tomorrow. So out of their fear, out of their anxiety, they don't eat all of the abundance that God has desired to give them. Or or there's another problem. That's verse 20. In verse 27, you see some people who on the seventh day are still rooting around looking for more. And their fear, on the eighth day, it won't come back. You know, the manna didn't come today, or if it came, I didn't see other people going to get it, and maybe I need to be the smart one and store up for tomorrow because it might not come tomorrow, or if it does, I'll have more. What you see is a person who has missed the gift of rest, of Sabbath, and who is working way more than they are need to be, and who is living their life out of stress, not out of trust in a heavenly father. So this is the training exercise, see? And you could get it wrong in the first day. And you could get it wrong on the second day. You could get it wrong in the first and the second and the third week. But it's okay. You're always getting enough. God keeps giving the food. Failure in the test is not failure to eat. God doesn't withhold anything from anybody. Everybody gets enough. Failing the test is failing to live in the peace of God's grace in the wilderness. Failing to know in your experience what it means to be a beloved daughter or child of a heavenly father. See, this is where your family begins, when you know yourself to be free. And here's the point. You know that you're a part of God's family when you do what a family member can do. You know you're a part of the family when you do what only a family member can do. My grandfather worked in Maine his whole career. He worked in a, in a warehouse, a plumbing supply warehouse. And I was so proud as a kid to visit him in Portland, Maine. And I would, I would go to that warehouse. And, you know, a warehouse is a dangerous place, right? And, you know, all these signs that say employees only and no kids should come. And there are forklifts that are backing around. There are pipes that are being swung around. But I knew I could walk through right through that big, huge uh, garage door. And I could walk right through those men and they might look at me a little funny, but I had every right to be there and I could walk right into the back, into the back offices because my grandpa worked there. See, you know you're part of the family when you can do what only a family member can do. And God's saying, you're going to discover that about me. You're going to discover that in the wilderness and you're going to discover that because I have bread for you when you are most deprived and hungry. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across in the New Testament. You notice his letters so often have these two parts. He says, let me tell you the first part of this. The first part is just what's true about you because God has said so. And what's true about the Israelites is they are a firstborn son. God has said so. But the second part is where you wake up to that reality in your own experience. And you start to live like a firstborn son. And that's what happens in the wilderness. So, so often there's a seam. Paul says, here's what's true of you. Now, therefore, go live in that reality. Take these instructions. Take the good news of Jesus Christ and live. Live like it were true. Dare. Take the risk. 
Have you ever wondered why the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible? We get the Lord's Prayer, and you go, well, how come the sinner's prayer is so different from the Lord's Prayer? Well, it's because the Bible, the New Testament, is written to believers. They already know what is true about them, but what they need is a prayer that will sustain them through the wilderness journey and that will shape them into daughters and sons who live in God's grace. And so Jesus says, pray, our Father. He's not my Father, he's your Father. Jesus says, no, if you're in me, he's your Father, just like me. You're a child of God. You pray, our Father, who art in heaven. And you pray, give us this day our daily bread. And you pray for forgiveness of sin. All your sin has been forgiven, but what you need to do is experience that forgiveness today. Would you, would you dare to live as though your forgiveness is true today? And so you better pray that prayer every day. And the same, the prayer that you have the capacity to forgive others and that you have the capacity to endure under temptation and trials because this is the wilderness. But you are a people who can resist the, 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 the devastating impact of the wilderness because I am with you and I am the bread of life. We are called to live as free as Robert Saltzman. So for us, Some application. There is a brilliant moment in this passage for me in verse 10. And I think here you will get an image that I want you to hold on to this week. An image of God's abundance intersecting with your necessity. In verse 10, God interrupts. We've got this weak need people in the wilderness, in the desert. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked suddenly toward the wilderness and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. That word glory, as I've told you before, means the weight, the heaviness, the riches, even the abundance of the Lord. Here they are bereft of anything, helpless and hopeless. And all of a sudden, as they talk with Aaron, All of their eyes are drawn to the horizon, and there is a cloud. The glory, the abundance of the Lord moving their way. Where is your necessity? Where are you most acutely aware of the wilderness in which you travel this week? Maybe God seems distant. Maybe you can hardly even believe that there is a God. So God-forsaken is the horizon. Maybe you, like the family of of the Myers or the Yarnells are sitting at hospice or you're brokenhearted over a personal tragedy. Maybe reading the newspaper, your heart just drops when you realize how much pain and suffering there is so far and even so near. Maybe you have a sense of your own shame. Just haven't been able to be the person that you think and know you can be. Maybe there's a kind of a gnawing inside of you for intimacy and Maybe even sexual intimacy in a way that you don't feel you can fulfill. And you don't know what to do with that feeling. Maybe there's just too much stress. There's too little time in your week. And every time you get a project, you've got a a sense that you're just going to fail. You're just not going to be able to do it. And this is your wilderness. Whatever it is, that's your necessity. I want you to take what you know of Jesus Christ And ask yourself, if I really believe that Jesus is in me and for me, how would my week be different? What would I do differently? Where are you hungry? Can you see the cloud gathering 
over your need. God wants to rain bread in Jesus Christ. I, I close with a, just a brief story about a journeyer who traveled through the desert, and after a while his canteen ran empty, and there was still more to traverse. And it looked grim when he came across in the middle of nowhere a water pump, one solitary water pump with a sign on it. And this sign, with its instructions, forced him to make an important decision about his trust. Because on the sign were the words written, this pump has been recently restored with a fresh gasket, but it will need to be primed. Dig underneath the pump and you will find there, a foot below, a jug of water. Do not drink the water. If you drink the water, you will die. There is not another well for miles to go. Take the jug, remove the cap, and pour it in the top of the well to prime it, and then work the pump handle as feverishly as possible. If you do that, you will have all the water that you need and more. Fill the jug back up, close it, and bury it for the next traveler. What would you do? Would you believe the word that you read? and go walking with satisfaction through the desert? Or would you choose to live conservatively in fear and anxiety and find yourself in a shallow grave? God has invited us to so much more than that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, at your invitation, we sinners are bold enough to pray that prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, And we pray knowing that whatever we face, your grace is more than adequate. For you're the one who did not withhold your own son, but gave him for us in love that we might have life. What would you possibly withhold? In the face of every adversity, there is for us grace in Jesus Christ, a new way to live, a way to live that teaches us that we are truly your daughters and your sons. Help us to see that grace. Help us to feast on Jesus Christ. And help us to share the bread with a world that is as hungry as we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.